We need to discuss this Solid Gold reference. <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember Solid Gold? Absolutely, which is why we okay. need to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, that's all that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to be one of those dancers that came out at the beginning of the show and during the intermissions. So yeah, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> Did you ever take any dance classes? Uh I did prior to kindergarten or something like that, but you know, dance isn't really my thing. <laughs> so, so how are you gonna be a solid <laughs> <dancer>? <laughs> What's up, standouts? It's Yolanda, and this is episode number seven of How She Did It. I'm interviewing my BFF from childhood, Dr. Deanne Davis-Brooks. She is an associate professor in the exercise science department at Salem College, a liberal arts women's college in North Carolina. She's a full-time professor, she's a track coach, and she's also married with three daughters, all under the age of 11. Deanne does a lot. Four things you will take away from this episode are, number one, how limiting her educational options has served Deanne well. Number two, how Deanne uses her social skills to be memorable at work. And number three, the tough but needed feedback a professor gave her that changed how she prioritized her doctorate degree. All of this and more in this episode. You can find links to what we chat about in this episode on the show notes page at nts.today forward slash seven. And now let's start the show. My name is Deanne Davis Brooks. I am currently an associate professor at Salem College for Women I teach a variety of courses dealing with physical activity, sports, and human movement. Uh, so that's what I do full-time professionally. I also am a track coach. I've been coaching track since I was an undergraduate student. So I coach a youth track club, the Durham Striders, and we compete for USA Track and Field on the age group level. And then I also coach at a couple of high schools in Greensboro and Burlington, North Carolina. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Burlington, North Carolina. I can say we have two high schools within the city limits and then maybe six additional high schools throughout the county. I went to Cummings High School where I ran track for four years. I ran indoor and outdoor track. Our team, I'm proud to say, won four state championships while I was there. And each year I won several state championships as an individual. My time growing up in in Burlington really consisted of family first and a lot of sports and a lot of academics. Very traditional upbringing. So tell me about high school other than, you know, sports. Like what were some high points? Who were like some of your favorite teachers, favorite activities, things that kind of really shaped what you were thinking you wanted to do? I was... I you was fortunate. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I was fortunate enough. I had to frame it. I was fortunate enough to have been identified and placed into the academically gifted program. And that started back in elementary school, I think third or fourth grade. So through middle school and through high school, I had what I now think of as an experience within an experience. So I was at this very diverse high school, but I was in a cohort with all of these other very intelligent students. So I, it was cool because I was a nerd in the classroom, but then I was a jock when it came to being an athlete. So I feel like I had the best of both worlds, but that experience academically really prepared me to just have the confidence that I needed to go on to college and succeed academically. I was able to have conversations with people who were like me, people who weren't like me. Just a fun experience. Mm -hmm. We had a great social climate and environment. Our teachers were, they challenged us, but 
I think they also knew us as individuals, so they challenged us appropriately given what our whatever skills and talents we brought to the table. Yeah, I agree. It's like our our story is very similar because we went to the same middle and high school. We both mm-hmm. played sports together. Only got two state championships. Thanks to you, I have those <laughs> two. Yeah, it was fun. Really good. Good teachers, tough classes, right. and also like really fun. I had a lot of fun in high school. When you graduated high school, what did you think you wanted to do with your life? Oh, uh, I am not that person. <laughs> you know, past the point where I wanted to be a solid gold dancer. I don't think I ever set my sights on any particular career or any particular job. I was a nerd in the purest sense of the word when I say that I took classes and stayed in school simply because I was interested in learning. I didn't ever really have a goal set on, I need to learn this so that I can succeed in X particular job. So, well, at Cummings, one of my favorite teachers was um, Mr. Cook. And oh, he taught, yeah, <laughs> so he taught the science classes. So when I went to college, I went to college, to be honest, because I chose my college because of the track team and the track coaches. I made that decision. Then I started realizing that, hey, I need to choose a major. Uh, But I chose biology because I had enjoyed my science classes so much in high school. Once I got to college, though, I realized that the part of biology that I appreciated and was most interested in was the human biology. And that was because if I learned more about human biology and human physiology, it would help me, I thought, in my own track career. The whole way through for me has really been about studying things that were interested and things that I could apply to something that, you know, I was doing at the time or something that I could see myself doing. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, my fa- so we need to discuss this solid gold reference. <laughs> Do you remember Solid Gold? Absolutely, which is why we okay. need to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, that's all That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to be one of those dancers that came out at the beginning of the show and during the intermissions. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> did you ever take any dance classes? Uh, I did prior to kindergarten or something like that. But, you know, dance isn't really my thing. <laughs> So how are you gonna be a solid dancer? <laughs> As I said, my my academic interests don't necessarily line up with my professional goals. Okay, so you went to UNC. I did. And you chose it for academics and because you got a track scholarship there and they had a really good program. Well, that's Sounds like good phrasing, <laughs> but <laughs> the truth is that all of the schools. So I was a national champion. If I can brag on myself a little bit, please. Um, in high school, I was a national champion in the triple jump and track. I was, you know, every year I was winning like four individual events at our state championship. So I was highly recruited. Um, so I had really a large number of schools that I could have chosen. So all of the schools that made my short list were good academic schools. The thing that was most attractive to me about UNC, however, was not only its academic reputation, but also the strength of the track program and my comfort with the other athletes who were on the team and my respect for the track coaches who were there. So um, track was really my number one defining feature and then the academic part was a bonus. Okay, got you. <laughs> Which I would never tell that to the students that I teach now. <laughs> but, you know, back at the time, that's, that's how it went down. Really, we always had coaches, my parents included, who were clear that sports can be an avenue toward furthering education. Then, of course, as a competitor, you know, I wanted to go where I would have the best coaching, the best facilities, the best resources so that I could be the best that I could be. 
So you majored, tell me again what you majored in and why? I majored in exercise and sports science. Uh, and I chose that because it is a study of human movement. So science as applied to the human body and physical movement. So I got to take classes like exercise physiology and biomechanics and sports psych. All of the stuff that I teach now. And it was interesting to me because everything that I was learning in the classroom was directly applicable to what I was doing on the track. It just made for a cool environment where you can study something and then go test it out. I was that person who went to class every day. I did, I never skipped class, but I wasn't necessarily the person who stayed up late studying. <laughs> So it just didn't make sense to me to stay up studying for a test when I wasn't going to remember the information down the road. So there were several instances where I went ahead and went to bed, didn't cram for a test. That doesn't necessarily mean I was prepared for the test. Mm -hmm. But I can remember clearly several times where I didn't get the grade that I wanted on the test. And to me, that wasn't this devastating event like, oh, my gosh, my GPA is going to suffer. For me, that was just an indicator that I hadn't learned what I should have learned. Mm -hmm. So I would go back and study and read again after the test was done just because I wanted to know the information. Okay. And um, I, try, I try to encourage my students now to have that same attitude, which is, you know, think about why this stuff matters. It doesn't really matter just so that you, you can get a grade. It matters because you want to be knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite class? Exercise physiology. I just really was intrigued by the ways that the human body reacts to physical activity. So exercise physiology, we would look at how the major physiological systems in the body respond to chronic and acute exercise. So we looked at how the heart changes during exercise, how the heart changes as a result of long-term physical activity, and then how the heart changes as a result of long-term inactivity. Mm. But once again, because I was so interested in that class, that's what I chose to go on and study in graduate school. Not because I wanted any particular job, but because, hey, I wanted to know more about exercise physiology. Okay, so that's a nice transition. So once you graduated from UNC, you went straight to graduate school to get your master's. I did. I went to. The University of Georgia, which is a huge school, it was the only school that I applied to, and I was lucky enough to, well, I would say I was prepared and fortunate enough to be connected with the person who was able to, gra to grant me a graduate assistantship, which meant that my master's degree was paid for. I, I worked in the cardiac rehab facility as sort of an internship. And they paid my way to my grad program. Oh wow! Um, why okay. was you? Why was UGA the only school that you applied to? Um, I applied to UGA. <laughs> I don't know if you want to put this in the podcast, but I applied no. because I had a teammate who had graduated from UNC a year before me, um, Lashonda Christopher, and she had gone to UGA and. I talked to her. She loved it. I was like, I should go there, too. <laughs> and they have an exercise physiology program. So was LaShonda the one who helped you learn about the graduate assistantship program? Or how did you get connected? Oh, no, yeah. So uh, athlete academic support program at UNC was a woman named Dr. Janice Hilliard. And she just kept stressing the importance of graduate school. And to be honest, I didn't really know what graduate school was all about. I didn't know. I knew that my professors were Dr. This and Dr. That. I knew that they had GAs or TAs. I didn't really know what it took to qualify for those positions. So I wasn't clear on what graduate school was. So when LaShonda went to grad school and she was able to report back, that was really my first experience talking to somebody who was my age, who had gone to graduate school that I was, and I was in the position to listen to her as a senior in college at that point. And then when Dr. Hillier was stressing, you know, you're smart, go on to graduate school I'll help write letters of recommendation for you. 
I was like, okay, let me do this. But, you know, being who I am, again, I wasn't that person who said I have to go get an exercise science uh, or an exercise physiology master's degree. So I'm going to look at the best programs across the country. I just knew that they had a program that LaShonda was there. It was in Georgia, so it was close to North Carolina. I could stay close to home. Um, I applied. I got in. So that was that. <laughs> it was It was really no reason for me to look anywhere else. Okay. So did LaShonda's recommendation about the program, did what she say, did it live up to what you were expecting? She actually was not in my particular program. She was in the sport management program. But in terms of the school and the reputation of the university in general, yes, it definitely um, lived up to whatever I was expecting. And again, I didn't really have too many expectations. I was, again, fortunate enough to have come into contact throughout those two years that I was there with such smart people who were well connected, uh, really helped set me up to move forward in my, my career. Is there someone that stands out to you that you remember? Oh, yeah. So I was a graduate assistant in the adult fitness and cardiac rehabilitation program there. Um, and the director was Dr. Harry Duvall. And we basically, there are four GAs. So myself and three other full-time GAs who work there. And we basically ran a phase three cardiac rehabilitation program under the direct direction of uh, Dr. Duvall, but we ran that. We, so we got an incredible experience of being practitioners who are charged with developing safe and effective health-related exercise programs for people who were recovering from heart surgery or dealing with chronic diseases, either cardiac cardiovascular disease or respiratory illnesses. So he was a great mentor because he was like the mentors that I had prior to him. He was a person who said, I need for this to be done. Go do it. He wasn't a micromanager. He didn't give, uh, you know, an abundance of instruction. He just trusted us and expected us to be able to problem solve. And that was right in my wheelhouse. So I really appreciated working with him. And um, in terms of, again, this trend of me pursuing what interests me, we we had the opportunity within the exercise physiology concentration to take elective courses. And most people take courses across campus. Maybe you'll take a nutrition class. Maybe you'll take, you know, a class in gerontology, whatever. But I took all of my electives in the sport management program um, because I was interested in sports as well as exercise. And so there, my my mentor was um, Dr. Billy Hawkins. And I believe it or not, I ended up with everything. I was one credit, one course short of earning a second master's degree in sport management because I took so many classes with them. Georgia was a great decision for me. So I'm glad that that was the school that I, the one school that I chose to apply to. But for me too, it was a big deal to stay where I had a support mm -hmm. system. So you remember at the time you were in Atlanta, yeah. um, my brother and his family were in Atlanta mm -hmm. and it added to my sense of security to know that I had people like y'all really close by because I had never lived away more than 30 minutes away from home. Yeah. I didn't realize that you had graduate school was also paid for. So you were really fortunate to yeah. get a bachelor's and a master's and to leave with no student debt. So I'm sure that that really factored into yeah. like options and choices that you have because then you were free to do whatever because you didn't have that hanging over your head. Right. Right. And in terms of how that happens, right, that doesn't just happen. I know that, again, I use the word fortunate. I'm, I've been fortunate. So many stars had to align for me to have had the experience that I've had. But, you know, in, in high school, we just had really great coaches, first of all, who could um, train us in the way that that means that we had talent, but they also knew how to work with that talent so that we were recruited by college coaches. Mm -hmm. Same thing happened for me in my undergraduate in terms of my academics is that 
I, because I really believe this, I tell students all the time, because I was so interested in my major and the, the knowledge I gained from that, I did really well in my classes and I, I did extra stuff like, you know, professor, what do you need? Let me help you with set up this lab or that one. So when it was time for me to ask them for letters of recommendation, they were able to write really personalized, stellar letters of recommendation. And it was one of those letters in particular that was written to Dr. Duvall. Dr. Duvall knew personally the person who wrote the letter. And that's why I sort of bubbled to the top of all of the other candidates who were in line for that graduate assistantship. So I, I believe that, you know, everybody brings their talents to the table, but when given any opportunity, just be great. Just be great. I tried to be great as an athlete. It earned me a scholarship. I tried to be great as a student. It earned me full tuition paid master's degree. As a doctoral student and as a professor, I also try to be great at whatever it is that I'm doing. So you know, you asked me a few minutes ago, what was my, what was my goal in terms of profession? I never really had one, but I always know that I work hard and I try to be great at whatever it is that I'm doing right now. And so that's led me in really good directions. I've always had another great opportunity to follow the one that I have right now. So you graduate from UGA with a master's in exercise physiology. What did you do next? Uh, so after that, I came home and I landed a temporary position at the Duke Center for Living. Everything that they do is about using exercise as a clinical intervention. So it was hands on eight hours a day, full time work in exactly what I had been studying as a graduate student. I discovered in that experience that I wanted more variety in my workday. And the funny part is that I was doing exactly at the Duke Center for Living what I had been doing for the prior two years at Georgia. And I loved it at Georgia. But what I realized was that as a graduate assistant, we work maybe two or maybe three hours, two or three days a week. It wasn't a full time job. It just didn't give me enough movement. So when that temporary position ended, I started working at Cisco Systems in the Research Triangle Mm -hmm. Park. And I was employed by Johnson and Johnson Healthcare System. So we were contracted out to run their fitness center. That was an awesome opportunity as well, because I worked with geniuses, but they would come to the fitness center and ask me questions about things that I knew that they didn't. So I remember that I gave a lunchtime talk on how exercise affects the heart and You know, I was trying to motivate people to join the fitness center and that kind of thing. And at the end of the talk, somebody asked, hey, are you a nurse? I was like, no, why would you think I'm a nurse? Oh, because I know about biology and how the body works. So for me to realize how domain specific knowledge can be, that was really a confidence booster because now I can go toe to toe with these geniuses simply because I've had exposure to a certain knowledge set that they don't necessarily have. What other things did you do there? So it was it was a job that was basically about helping people be more efficient physically and then to help them gain the health benefits that come along with physical activity. Is there like a memorable person or class that you led that really um, impacted you or really helped you see that you're really good at what you did? Yeah. So in terms of me being good at what I did, I realized that one of my talents in this whole fitness industry was not necessarily what I knew. It was, it has always been my social skills. So when I worked in cardiac rehab, I was working with older adults. And so I was raised with my grandparents very close by. So I was, I've always been close, able to, and comfortable with older people. So I learned very quickly there that they came in because they wanted to socialize. Mm-hmm. And so if I could get them talking, they were going to keep exercising. And if I got them interested in coming back to talk, they were going to come back to exercise. And so that same thing happened to me at Cisco, where I think I was popular among the people who worked there because I was friendly. I tried to relate to them, to draw them in first. And then let's talk about this exercise thing that 
you either don't want to do, you're not motivated to do, or you don't like to do. Deanne worked at Cisco and at the Cardiac Rehab Center in graduate school. She used her social skills to keep her clients coming back. She recognized they came to socialize and if she could keep them talking, she could keep them exercising. Having good social skills is one of those things that can serve you well in your career and in life in general. I used to not have good social skills and didn't think there was anything that I could do about it. In the last four years, I've gone from being socially awkward to being more socially confident. And I wrote an article that covers how I did it. I didn't wake up one day feeling socially confident. It was a gradual process for me. If you want to read what I did, go to nts.today forward slash social. So why did you leave Cisco? Again, it was one of those things where I just was not being challenged. My self-challenge that I made for myself was how how social can I be? (laughs) It just wasn't challenging enough. So I had come through a program where I studied clinical exercise physiology. And I was basically doing the work uh, that a high school student could have done. And because I worked for Johnson & Johnson, it was a corporate model. So they basically made decisions at the corporate office. And then it was my job to implement whatever challenges or strategies they came up with. So for me, I didn't feel like I had the um, intellectual rigor in that job that really motivates me. I, I, I am driven by autonomy. I like challenges that I am charged with figuring out the solutions to. And I just didn't have that experience at Cisco. So I decided to look for something Okay, else. and so then what was your next challenge and how were you able to find it? So my next challenge is in that time, I got married and moved to Dallas, which is where my husband was. Uh, one of the ones that I was offered early on was as a personal trainer in a huge corporate gym facility. And so again, I had spent my graduate education learning that physical activity is this thing that can save lives. And so as a personal trainer, I, that was my mission, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to offer the service. I'm going to help people get healthier. What I learned was, is an important lesson, but I learned that in the setting where I was hired to work, it wasn't necessarily about my knowledge or the health qualities of exercise. It was really my main goal was to sell personal training sessions, to be a salesperson, to bring in clients. And so I was just not good at that because if I sat down with a person who wanted personal training and they couldn't afford it, I was over there whispering, well, if you come in between two and three, it's normally pretty slow. I don't have any clients and I could just work with you for free. So I wasn't good at my job. because I'm not, not a good salesman. <laughs> I was not good at my job. So uh, you were realized personal training, AKA selling personal training um, was not for you. What did you do next? Um, so I was way in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> That's a long way from North Carolina. And you know me well enough to know that I want mm-hmm. to be right at home. I want to be Close to my mom and daddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I actually decided to come back to North Carolina and just get settled here while my husband was still playing football. So I knew that there was a great possibility that he can end up wherever on whatever team. I just wanted to be in one place. And I knew that one place mm-hmm. was North Carolina. While I was in Texas, I applied to the doctoral program at UNC Greensboro. So I um, applied, got in, and then moved back home. Between the time that I moved back home and the semester started at UNCG, I actually applied for and was hired as the head track coach at Elon University. That's how I transitioned from Dallas and not being a good salesperson to coming back and being the track coach at, at a division. Okay. One and so was UNCG the only school that you applied to? Of course. 
you know how I do it. <laughs> but they actually had... No, listen, this doesn't sound good when I say it out loud. But listen, they... This time, I, I knew I wanted to come back home. So I looked at the universities in the area to look at their doctorate program. And UNCG was the only one that offered an EDD. So my doctorate is a doctorate in education and EDD is not a PhD. The EDD is a program designed for practitioners. So it is um, a deeper level of study and knowledge, but it is for people who want to apply this knowledge in some kind of way, either as teachers in my case, I wanted to do it because I was a coach. Um, and so it was specific to what I wanted to do and how I wanted to use the knowledge that I would gain as a doctor. Mm-hmm. I at no point wanted to pursue a career in research. And so I knew the PhD wasn't something that I was attracted to. And most of the doctoral programs that I had seen in the area granted PhDs and not the EDD. So yes, UNCG was the only program that I applied to, but I applied to it because it had a specific program that was really attractive. And why did you choose kinesiology? Again, it was still in my interest, right? I've always been, I started running track when I was seven. I played basketball, I played softball. I've always, I've always been interested in sports. I had this um, undergraduate and master's level education in exercise science and so I just wanted to continue that it's something that interests me um on the doctoral level I learned more about the social cultural historical factors that are involved and how we move and why and so that really drove me to pursue a doctorate so when I was at Georgia I ran the card I helped run the cardiac rehab center but I always had this question of why are all our clients white and or rich. I think we had one non, well, one black patient that I remember and and one other non-white patient that I remember. Um, so that was always confusing to me. And in the exercise physiology curriculum, we didn't address those cultural factors that might have led to that particular phenomenon. We talked about all of these social and cultural factors that really contextualize what we see in the landscape of who participates in sports and physical activity. So that was a new area of knowledge that I hadn't yet been exposed to and really drove my curiosity. So again, no, I'm, I'm good. I, I love being in school as long as I'm learning something and it's interesting. So I was all in. Mm. Okay. So that sounds, that program sounds really interesting. What was something that you learned that was really eye-opening as to why it's a, why there was kind of this only rich white people really were exercising or what did you, what was something that you remember that you were really shocked? Well, you know, it's just like when you look at any other seemingly segregated institution, you're going to have a clientele that matches or somewhat matches or reflects the people who are in leadership. So our cardiac rehab center was housed within a university. Universities are dominated by white folks. So I think that might have been one of the reasons why we drew in the particular crowd that we did, not focusing on Georgia, but focusing on physical activity in general. People of color are less likely to participate in health-related exercise um, than are white folks. And I think a lot of it has to do with the messaging. If you pick up a men's health or women's health, the images that you're going to see are of white people. We don't yet have enough images that reflect the diversity that we see in our culture. So I think from that modeling perspective, people of color don't necessarily have the mainstream models that white folks have in terms of exercise. But I will say that one of the questions that I'm pursuing now and one of the questions that I developed as a graduate student is is referring to the statistics that say that Black people 
Latino, Latina people don't exercise, right? Because I ran the Peachtree Road mm-hmm. Race one year while I was a, a doctoral student. And I, I was reflecting on all these research studies that say, in particular, Black women don't exercise, aren't physically active, aren't active and are sick because of it. And I showed up to the Peachtree Road Race and I was like, what? I see a lot of Black people out here running and walking. So um, one of my goals as a researcher, practitioner, educator is to make sure that our research is reflective of the truth of people's lives. And um, so I approach my research from a womanist perspective, which is that um, rather than just asking questions and collecting numbers on physical activity participation rates, my goal is to really talk to people and get hear from them about their lived experiences. So we know that more people of color are physically active than what's reflected in the research. And one of the reasons for that discrepancy is that the types of physical activity people of color do don't necessarily count under the definitions that show up on many like of the surveys. Um, so whether or not people count, you know, their, their work-related physical activity. So a lot of some surveys will ask you to record your leisure time mm-hmm. physical activity. And then that is extrapolated to mean your physical activity in general. Well, if you have a great population in any racial or ethnic group that is participating in physical activity as a function of the work that they do, then they're actually um, getting the health benefits of that activity. But when you report out, because it's not leisure time activity, it might not show mm-hmm. up in those results. Mm-hmm. The, the problem with that is not just the inadequacies in the reporting, it is in the judgment that then comes along with that. So if we know, which we do, that physical activity is um, a health-related behavior, we also know that inactivity is a health risk. We know that health risk increase your disease risk, disease is expensive, and now we're blaming people for being sick. If we back all the way up and we're blaming people for being sick because they're not being physically active, and all of our research shows that people of color are less physically active and therefore not getting the health benefits, but the reason we're making that judgment is because they're not engaging in the leisure time physical activity that is only sensitive in your surveys, then we're creating this problem where we're negatively evaluating a whole group of people based on mm-hmm. false assumptions. You're at UNCG and you're really delving into all of these sounds like really awesome classes. And as you were matriculating through the program, what were you thinking as you were doing the program? I know you really like to learn, but what were you thinking that you wanted to do? I had... Awesome. When I say awesome, I mean awesome professors and mentors at UNCG. So I and and awesome in that they challenged me. When I started, I was the head coach at Elon. So for two years, I was a head coach and trying to pursue a doctorate. And I remember clearly handing in a paper to Dr. Cheryl Cheryl Hoffman, and I told him oh my gosh, I've been recruiting. I've been making phone calls. We had a meet this week. This is the best I could do. And he looked me square in my eyes and said, this is not the quality of work that's acceptable. You can do better. And if you can't do this in your job, you need to quit one. And so he told me, he was like, if this, if you really want to pursue this doctorate, we're going to require a higher level of quality from you. And if you you can't meet the standard, then you've got to go. And so he was right. I was not passionate about coaching at the collegiate level. I'm passionate about coaching. But um, many of the things involved in the job of being a college coach were not appealing to me. And he was right. I wanted to be more involved in the department at UNCG. I wanted to take more classes. I just wanted to. That's where I wanted to put my energy. And so. That at the end of that semester, I quit my job at Elon and became um, a TA in the department at UNCG. I started going to academic conferences. I, you know, that's really the moment where I took the path that I'm on now. 
So Cheryl Hoffman, I, I clearly remember looking at him like, <laughs> how dare you tell me I need to quit? Yeah. But he was right. You know, he was so wise and so honest. That that was an awesome moment that I will never forget. But I also had two, I had co-directors of my um, dissertation committee. So they were my, my academic advisors. One was Dr. Kathy Jamison and the other was Dr. Bill Harper. And they could not have been more different in terms of what they study and their backgrounds. But they came together in terms of being able to see me. And when I say see me, I mean, look beyond whatever. They were able to challenge me in a way that nobody else had. And I don't know what it was that they saw in me, but they um, both were able to. Okay, let me give you an example. So I was in a doctoral seminar with Kathy Jameson. And I was the only black female in the class. And there were maybe six other students in there. So one of our assignments was to read an article and write a critique on it. So um, and then our classmates were to respond to everybody. And I remember watching the message board go and everybody else who posted classmates would give really eloquent Responses and challenges and all of that. And then I remember posting mine, right? I posted my critique and the only comment that I received was very mm. well written. And so you said, mm, because you get that, right? You get that. And I'm sure that none of my other classmates got why that was insulting and upsetting for me. And I'm sure that most of the professors that I had had to that point would not have recognized why that was upsetting to me. But Kathy Jamison actually emailed me prior to our next class and said, how do you feel about this? Do I need to address this with your classmates? And so at that point, I knew that she got me differently than other people in academia would. And so I had a conversation with her um, and basically said, no, as long as you support me, I'm cool. But I think it is worth the conversation for people to know how these unconscious biases show up. Right. Their unconscious bias was that I shouldn't be able to write that well. Why else would you write that? Hey, this is a very well written comment. I'm a doctoral student. I should be able to write well. Right. So. Let's get to something that's more meaningful. But she was able to see that and call that out. And Dr. Carper, he was the person who actually agreed to take me on as a doctoral student for all intents and purposes, admitted me to the program and really challenged me in my writing to make sure that I was progressing, really challenged me in any assumptions that I made as I was doing my research and made sure that everything I did was at such a high quality that I would be prepared to go out and succeed. And so they were so important to me. I just don't even know how I can repay them ever because they 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 also were the ones who told me, hey, you might make a good teacher. I never thought about it. Like even though I had gone full tilt into the academic department, I never thought about being a teacher because it's, you know, I just, I didn't know anybody who had done it on the college level. I knew that all of my teachers had been professors because they were at major universities. I knew I didn't want to be a researcher. It was really that experience in the department at UNCG that changed my outlook and my mindset and my own expectations of what it would be possible to do with my, my background. So I, I, you know, when I hit the lotto, I'm giving a lot of money to the department. <laughs> at they will appreciate that. Um, that. That story reminds me of an experience I had working where I was working for this guy and I had to do a lot of write-ups of meetings and I have to do a lot of presentations and he would always comment like, wow, you were such a good writer. And it was just like, wow, you're so good at writing. And uh-huh. I attribute that uh-huh. to, I remember in elementary and middle school that we had writing teachers that would come in to class and teach us how to outline, teach us how to write. And so that really, I think, helped me become a good writer. But I just sensed 
that there was like I appreciated him acknowledging that I was good at what I was doing, but I also felt that there was a a tinge of I'm really shocked that you can do this and you can do that um, because I just wasn't expecting this like from you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So you graduate from UNCG with your EDD, not PhD. And so then you go through a series right. of, you were an assistant professor and then an associate professor. Let's just for time's sake, why don't we kind of cover both of those together? So you were at initially Greensboro College, and then you moved on to Salem College. What was similar about those experiences, and then what was different? Um, So I was an assistant professor once I first started at Greensboro College. And in terms of being great and then getting connections, that's exactly how this happened. Greensboro College is literally across the street from UNC Greensboro. And so they had an opening in their department. They knew people at UNCG. They reached out and said, do you have anybody who is qualified for this position? My name came up. I interviewed. And of course, I told you, of course, I'm going to get the job. Um, But I was hired like two weeks before the semester. And I was teaching three classes that I had never taught before. And so that semester was a blur. I worked so hard, but it was awesome because it was a division three school class sizes of no more than 12 or 15 and I got to be a generalist I got to teach across my interests and so it was just awesome I remember the first after the first week realizing that when I got home in the afternoons I wasn't exhausted Every other job that I ever had, I was exhausted because it was work that I didn't want to be doing. It wasn't work that fed me. But I remember after the first week in Greensboro thinking, hey, I'm not exhausted. I really like this. I'm looking forward to going to work. I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, that was the first time that I knew that even though I hadn't pursued a career as a professor in higher education, this is exactly what I need to be doing. You know, I tweaked the curriculum a bit. I like doing that. I like teaching in a way that is interesting to students. I don't use PowerPoint. I do a lot of hands-on stuff. I do a lot of conversation in class. While I was at Greensboro College, I won the award for the junior faculty teacher. And then, you know, maybe a couple years after that, I won the Teacher of the Year Award. Students voted for me to be their speaker at baccalaureate. So, I, you know, I, I had the respect of the faculty but also the respect of the students. And so it was, and, it, and the funny thing is, it's so really easy for me in terms of I work hard, but it, what I'm doing fits my talents. What do you think makes you so well suited to be a professor? Mainly because I, to my core, see education, I see it as transformative. Like I, I have a textbook for every class that I'm in and there's content in that textbook. I have learned that I don't have to cover every word in the textbook in my lectures. I don't even attempt that anymore. What I want to know is how does this information going to enhance change your life? And so let's get into that. That's how I approach my classes, my teaching and my interactions with students. So in terms of being suited for higher education, It is my desire to really get to know and help young people through education. And so I feel a Mm -hmm. deep sense of purpose. So um, the particular talents are just, you know, of course, I'm I'm smart. That's a part of it. But I also am compassionate and I care and I, I have a value for what education can do. So all of those things really make me see. Yeah. So do you mind sharing the story? Cause this is something that I always remember and it made me like proud to know you. And then to also think like, you're really good at, you should be a professor. But I remember you telling me about mm-hmm. the, the guy, I think he was an athlete and he was having some issues and uh-huh. he was in danger of getting uh-huh. kicked out of school or like the other professors just saw him as a lost cause and you were able to relate to him 
on a level and really made a yep. difference. And I think the YMCA fits into this story as well, because that was something that he didn't see himself doing, but then it ended up being something he was doing. Yep. So I would love for you to share that story. Yeah. Well, I think you, you summed it up pretty much, but um, it was when I was at Greensboro college and there was a student who had ended up there. He came there to play football. He had been to several different schools prior to coming to Greensboro College. Things didn't work out at those schools. This was sort of his last opportunity to play. Once he got to Greensboro College, figured out, realized that he wouldn't be eligible to play there either. And it was devastating to him. So he wasn't going to class. He wasn't doing what he needed to do because he wasn't able to play football, which I could relate to as an athlete, right? But I remember getting this email that had gone out to all of his professors and it was like, you know, this student has not been coming to class. If he doesn't show up next week, I'm going to drop him. And if we drop him, he get he gets kicked out of class. And I was like, wait, I don't even know why he's not coming to class. That's where my mind went. Not just the fact that he's not coming. My mind went to, well, why isn't he coming? So I called him into my office before replying to that email thread and said, what's going on? So in that conversation, um, he told me that his goal was always to be an NFL player. And I, you know, immediately I was like, well, you know, that's a pipe dream. Nobody really ever makes it to the NFL. And he said, but I have three cousins mm-hmm. who are there and I was, I, I had a scholarship to a major FBS D1 school and I messed it up. So he really was one of the few who likely could have made it, but it didn't work out for him. So the whole time he was talking, I could just see that he was sad, see that he was disappointed in himself. You know, of course he regrets all the decisions that he made that had landed him where he was now. But in that conversation, and it lasted several hours, I had to convince him that there was life after football convince him not to drop out of school and go back to the hood where he came from, where his only option without an education would be to do something illegal. Um, and ended up, um, he, he decided to stay for that semester. He promised me he would stay for that semester. I ended up getting him an internship with, he was a African-American black man. Um, I ended up getting him an internship at the YMCA under another black man that I knew would understand his story and would take him under his wing and mentor him. And that happened. And he ended up graduating and getting a job at the YMCA, which was totally different from anything he had imagined for himself. But again, it was me being able to have this conversation of, okay, well, football didn't work out. We got to move past that. And you know, coming from Burlington, there are a lot of people that we know who could have been pro athletes, but it didn't work out. So how long are we going to hang on to that? I'm not going to continue treating you like all that you're worth is your athleticism. Um, I'm not going to treat you like I don't care about you. But I was able to see him and interact with him differently than the other teachers. And that has happened time and time again, where I have students who are excellent in my class, so respectful, engaged, do their work, do their reading. And I'll hear from my colleagues that, man, I wish that one would just, you know, get out of my class or I don't know, they're so disrespectful or they talk too much. And I'm like, really? And what I realized, and I actually saw one last year, he was coaching basketball at the Y. And I said, listen, what was going on? Why did I hear all these negative things about you from the other teachers? He was like, Dr. Brooks, you just got me. You know, I, I, I liked you. You talked to me. You, you just, you understood those other teachers. They didn't care about me. And I don't, I don't think that that's an accurate judgment. I don't think that other teachers don't care. I think that other teachers weren't able to see them in the same way that I did because they look like my brother, right? They look like people in my family. They look like my friends that I grew up with versus them just being some caricature of whatever the Mm -hmm. media puts out about black men. Sometimes I have colleagues who have had really rough experiences as being people of color 
in academia and the reasons I understand want to leave. But I have the very opposite perspective is that that's the very reason we need to stay is because I want to be there for the students who aren't seen by other very well-meaning faculty members. Okay. Is there anything that you want to say about Salem College? Ooh, let's talk about what you just told me today. That you were asked to give the keynote for the incoming class. So tell me about that. Oh, yeah. So um, I gave the keynote at our opening convocation this year. It was a huge honor for me because I w- I'm only in my fourth year at Salem. So for them to ask me to address the entire campus community was a huge honor. We had some student protests in the spring of 2017. Not only our student protests on our campus, but, you know, the political climate in the country, that was just some heaviness. There was just tension in the air on our campus as there is, I think, anywhere else in this country right now. The charge of giving a speech at opening convocation where the purpose of my speech is to be a pep talk for the upcoming year, that, that was a pretty heavy challenge. I just approached it, I approached it from acknowledging that we'd had challenges, acknowledging that we are in a time in history, I think, where across our culture, we are asking questions and going through change. Um, but I also tied it back into the fact that, you know, I am now second generation college student in my family. On my, on my dad's side, um, my grandparents didn't have the opportunity to go to college. Their grandparents were in the generation of slavery, right? So, I mean, they likely weren't even allowed to read, much less pursue a college education. So I um, recognized that and tried to get students to think about how lucky they are to have these opportunities that people a couple generations ago did not have. At the end of the speech, to my surprise, because really what I did was told my story. I gave my perspective. At the end of that, I had so many people thanking me, congratulating me, hugging me, and just really saying that I was able to strike the correct tone that we needed at that time on our campus. And so it was a huge honor. I was so nervous about it. But again, I try to prepare and and be great at whatever I do. So I approached it seriously. Um, I gave a, a speech that many people say was a great speech. I know, it's funny, but many people say it's the greatest speech they've ever heard. <laughs> no, but I can't, I can't make that assumption. But, you know, I did get a lot of compliments on it. But as a result, I've gotten invited just follow-ups from that. Right now, I think people have noticed me who hadn't noticed me before, I'm proud of this. Students are coming to me for with their questions and their concerns now when they had mm-hmm. before. Students that I don't even teach. Lots of students who look like me. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and just like whatever comes out to you first. And these are less about your career and more about just you as a person. First question. When you need a boost of confidence, okay. what do you do? Oh, man. <laughs> How about Ann Cuddy? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I did it before I gave the convocation speech. I was on stage sitting next to the president of the college. And as you know, the intro speakers were going and I I felt my heart rate was a little faster than I wanted it to be. So I put my elbows on the the (laughs) armrest and poked my chest out. Power pose. It worked, man. Absolutely. So my next question may be hard for you to answer because I know that you have a love-hate relationship with your your smartphone, but are there five apps or services Uh that you can't live without? I wouldn't say that I can't live without, but I'll list the five that I use. I use uh, Mm -hmm. Facebook Messenger, Mm -hmm. not Facebook, but Messenger because I have a messenger group, a group chat with all of my cousins on my dad's side. So that's a way that I stay connected with them. You know, people post all the time. It's so funny to stay connected with so many of them at once. Um, I use Kindle, the Kindle app to read books. Um, Amazon (laughs) Prime. (laughs) And I used to run, use the RunKeeper app before I got my Apple Watch. Netflix, mm-hmm. because my kids use it all the time. Okay. And the Bank of America app. 
That's all of them. Like, I didn't even have to rank them. That's all of the your, ones. Your smartphone has one screen and all your apps can fit on it. Um, so you mentioned one of your, the apps that you couldn't live without is your Kindle. What's the last good book you've read? Or what's a book that you've read in the last six months that you recommend? But I like the, mm-hmm. I, I, I like series and I try to read books that have really nothing, mm-hmm. no academic value to them. Yeah. That girl with the dragon tattoo series. And so I've read the first three that were written by the original author. I read the number four one that was written by, um, the person who took over once the original author passed away. And I just saw on the shelf at Target that book number five is mm. out. So I look forward to reading that one. Okay. But I would recommend that series. And then there's also a series that is very different and definitely has no academic value, but it's the um, Family hmm. Hustle series by Carl Weber. The Midnight series oh, yeah. by Sister Soldier. Yeah, yeah. I like her stuff too. Okay, so who oh. are your possibility models? So this is women of color that inspire you and show you it's possible to live your dreams. Um. Professionally, uh, I've mentioned her several times, Janice Hilliard, Dr. Janice Hilliard. She was my, um, the director of the academic support program for athletes at UNC, at UNC when I was a student athlete there. She left to go on to work as a VP at the NBA. Um, and she was there for maybe 12, 15 years. And now she started the athlete empowerment zone on Facebook. So she's now a consultant that helps to a resource to athletes of all at all levels. She was a student athlete herself. He is the one who really told me that you are not defined by your athletic talents or your athletic abilities. You can be a great athlete and be respected for your intellectual um, talents. Um, she wrote my letters for graduate school. She wrote the letter that earned me an NCAA postgraduate scholarship. And she has just continued to be in my corner. And um, she was the person that I could look to who looked like me, really looked like me, meaning not only was she a black woman, but she is tall like I am. She's slim like I am. She had a short haircut the whole, the same time I had a short haircut. And more importantly, on the academic side, she had a PhD, but she had also come out of athletics. And so I've had a handful of other black professors but none of them really could relate on the athletic side so she is my one of my dreamers in terms of professionalism she's also told me um you know to know my worth and then to make sure that people respect my work personal role models you know one of my personal values is that of family in terms of everything that i do with work everybody that i know that i deal with know that my family comes first so i'm going to dedicate time to my job or when I leave here you might not be able to catch me on email or phone or on the weekends because at mm-hmm. that time I'm giving that time to my family people in my family my mentor my mom my grandmother you know those people who show me what it means to be a matriarch okay so if people wanted to find you online where should they go <laughs> <laughs> your LinkedIn <laughs> I, as one of my um friends that I ran into recently told me I am tough to get a hold to online. Um, LinkedIn, I think, is the most public of all of my social media. And I don't even know if that's very public or not. Yeah, LinkedIn will be good. So final question. The name of this podcast is How She Did It. If you could go back in time and give your younger self Uh some career advice, what would you say? Here's the thing. (laughs) I am so happy right where I am right now that I can't imagine having done anything differently. But when I think about the Mm -hmm. advice that I'll give my daughter, because you have three, it is make decisions early that will give you freedom later on. So when it comes to choosing a college, make smart financial decisions so that you're not strapped financially any more than you need to be so that you have freedom to take chances, take internships, to travel to opportunities uh, when you graduate. As a young professional, 
meet as many people as you can really meet them follow up by email follow up by phone call be outgoing even if you're a shy person i've learned that mentors are out there and ready to mentor they just need to know what you need so um i tell my students now have an elevator pitch if you are going to a conference with a bunch of doctors and you know you want to be a doctor, grab one by the arm, tell them what you want to do and ask them for their advice. So the other thing that has really served me well is really and truly pursuing my interests, not pursuing a job, pursuing my interests, pursuing those things that I want to know more about. Because whenever I have gotten opportunities, I have gone in with the attitude that I am the best because I'm the most prepared. So um, that's why I get these teaching awards is because I know my stuff, you know, it's, I, and I'm always constantly learning because it, I'm learning about things that I want to know about. So pursue your interests and that gives you so much energy back that you can then go out and do meet those challenges and do the hard work mm -hmm. that it takes to really Lovely. Love it. Okay, standouts. Isn't Deanne great? Here's a few things I learned during our conversation. I learned Deanne wanted to be a solid gold dancer when she was a kid. I also learned the difference between a PhD and an EDD. And finally, I learned her role as a professor was the first job she had in her career where she didn't feel exhausted at the end of the day. This was when she realized she was in the right career and doing something that fit her talent. The background music for this episode is from Ryan Little. Links to the things we discuss can be found on the show notes page at nts.today forward slash seven. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate the podcast on iTunes. Okay. Hi, Donnie. Hi, Donnie. <laughs> uh, oh, my daddy has given up. Okay, go downstairs with Papa Don, okay? Okay, uh-huh, close it.